What's up, everybody? Hardest part of the ring is in hell. God damn it, it's hell. Why is the cage gray? God, you got you got to make it red. Yeah, like 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 hell. Do you get it? You know you know how you know how fire is red. <laughs> God damn it! Let's let's paint the cell red. These marks will love it. <laughs> ah, do you get it? It's like hell. Yeah, Vince, we get it. Um, <laughs> um, man, that really fucks up your throat when you do that for a long time. Jesus Christ! I need to like yak off off mic real quick. Hold on. Oh man, beauty of the pause button, everybody. Um, <laughs> but yes. Today, we are going to bring it back to current day wrestling. Uh, that's right. Hell in a Cell 2020 was a thing that happened last night. And holy shit, what a show. Um, you know, I've been very critical in the past of these like gimmick pay-per-view concepts, right? Whether it's Hell in a Cell, uh, Elimination Chamber... TLC, like all these gimmick gimmick match pay-per-views, and to the extent where I actually did a whole episode on it, which I uh, I forget what episode number it is, but it was a few months ago, uh, Grinding My Gears Gimmick Matches. There's a big chunk in there where I talk about these gimmick match pay-per-views and how I do not like them, and how I think they are a detriment to storytelling and overall uh, character development. Just a uh, give you the quick cliffhanger version of uh, why I'm not a huge fan of them. Um, but I will say, as far as Hell in the Cell pay-per-views go, the one last night was, I think, by far the best one they've ever done. And, uh, I mean, that's saying something. They've been doing it for quite a while now, right? Like, the better part of a decade, I think. Yeah? Yeah? Um, so it was really good to see, because, you know, to put it generally... Um, I do not like how they kind of shoehorn Hell in a Cell into feuds that may not deserve it. And when I say deserve it, I hate hate when people say deserve it in wrestling. But when I say deserve it, I mean, um, if it's just like two guys that just started having beef, like why do you need to throw them in a cell right away? The Hell in a Cell, the Hell in a Cell, the whole premise, the whole birth of it was... A <clears throat> the ultimate culmination of a blood feud between two or more individuals. You know, Sean and Taker had that first one. Incredible. Arguably the best one <laughs> that ever occurred, and that was the first one. Obviously, you know, the Taker-Mankind feud. Guys that had been on and off fighting each other for several years. You know, you can even... Triple H and uh, Triple H and McFoley, Triple H and Shawn Michaels. These kind of feuds that it's like, okay, we've done everything. We've had regular matches. We've had this. We've had that. But we need to put ourselves in this Satan structure, and we need to have it out. Just me and you. No outside interference. Nowhere to run. Nowhere to hide. Nowhere to kiss. No. And all we can do is fight each other to the death. And whoever wins, wins. That's, in my opinion, that, that's, that's just my perspective on Hell in a Cell and what makes the match such a success and so valuable is that it can 
be that culmination that we're looking for in a feud. And a lot of times, like I said, you, you kind of get it. It's like a very cold feud or it's a feud that just started. Um, it's just not needed, right? But I say that only to make the point that I think this year they hit the nail right on the head with building up these matches to earn a Hell in a Cell stipulation. Earn it in that the feuds, the matches that happened inside the cell, I think made sense. And it's pro wrestling. It A lot of shit doesn't make sense. But we can all, you know, I say it all the time. When you're in that wrestling kind of bubble, in that context, in that universe, certain things have to make sense in order to kind of suck you in, right? And I think a lot of things on this show made sense. And um, overall, I thought it was a damn good, damn good pay-per-view. Um, like I said, the best Hell in a Cell to date uh, as far as pay-per-view goes. And, um, you know, I brought, like, I brought it up, but like, so we have three Cell matches on the card, right? And, you know, sometimes it can get a little tedious, like, oh, in past years, because it's like, oh, not, but by the end, by the last match, it's going to feel watered down. It's going to feel like, like I've seen this shit before. And I think that has happened in the past where they'll have like three matches on the card inside the cell. And by the last one, you're just like, oh, who gives a shit? Um, same thing with Elimination Chamber or TLC and things like that, right? That's a big part of why I didn't like or why I guess I still don't really like these gimmick match pay-per-views because it kind of waters everything down and um, kind of dilutes the appeal by the end of the show or the main event, right? But last night at Hell in a Cell, I think they did a damn good job at creating three unique identities to each Hell in the Cell match. And we'll kind of dig deeper as we go through the show. But So yeah, you you start out with Jay and Roman, right? Very, uh, very melodramatic, very, very sports entertainment type of match, right? Very heavy on the dialogue, very heavy on the storyline. And um, ultimately, they didn't even really use the cell, right? So that first cell match was more of like, the hell in a cell was more of a symbolic presence, right? Rather than a physical one. However, you get you move on to Bailey and Sasha. That cell is almost purely a physical presence, right? Car crash, just a lot of weapons, a lot of brutality, and the, the cell came into play more in a physical way rather than, you know, just the uh, the symbolic, metaphorical sense, right, that you saw in Jay versus Roman. And then you move on to, to Drew McIntyre versus Randy Orton. That gives you kind of an in-between those two, right? The cell comes into, the cell comes into play, but... um. It's not like a, a constant thread throughout the match, right? It ultimately is a, a, a huge, huge factor in the finish. But it's kind of in a traditional sense, like, yeah, we're going to use the cell. But um, the cell is really there in addition to the feud that we've built between us, right? So, yeah, the one match is really the cell doesn't come into play that much. The second match, it's like the main thing. And the third match is kind of in between, right? So I think they did as good a job as you could possibly do in creating three separate feels to each cell match, which is why I really, really enjoyed this pay-per-view. And I think that that's something that they've learned over time, right? Trial and error. Trial and error. So um, good on WWE for that and good on WWE for uh, making the most 
out of this COVID era. I don't think that gets really said enough, right? Just think, like, would we have even seen Hell in a Cell had they stayed in the Performance Center? I, I doubt it. Would it even fit? I mean, maybe it would. I don't know. But it would have definitely had a, a, a weird feel to it. So I think them moving to the Thunderdome, um, obviously, has created such a, a, bigger, a better atmosphere. Um, even though the, the audio is still canned audio, still fake audio, I think it still adds, you know, they're making the most out of what they got. You see the fans in the background. You know, you hear noise, although it might not be genuine. You hear noise along with seeing the fans. It creates a great atmosphere. And um, I think they were able to pull out a great Hell in a Cell pay-per-view, even though there was nobody in attendance, which is uh, pretty admirable, in my opinion. But, well, you know, with that, let's just get right into the pay-per-view, right? So um, I will mention the pre-show. I did not watch the pre-show. Um Sue me, I guess. <laughs> but uh, it's my understanding that uh, R-Truth defended the 24-7 title against Drew Gulak. And um, I just read a quick synopsis of the match. I didn't watch it. But I guess, there, you know, it's the normal hullabaloo you would see in any 24-7 match, right? Uh, <laughs> Drew, Gul- Drew Gulak beats the shit out of Lil Jimmy uh, to the great dismay of R-Truth. Uh, but R-Truth ends up getting the win, uh, countering some sort of move with a roll-up, and then he runs away, and then all the ninjas and the fucking Lucha House Party and all the ethnics chase R-Truth out of the arena, and uh, comedy ensues, I guess. Um, <laughs> and that's one of those things where I'm watch- if I'm watching Raw and the 24-7 stuff comes up, I'll watch it and enjoy it for what it is, but like, I don't know, man, I'm not going <laughs> to go out of my way to watch it at this point, but... That brings us to the opening match, the curtain jerker match. It's funny because the opening match is probably the, the match of the night. I was, on, I was very surprised that this opened the show, um, but we'll get into it. The Universal Championship is on the line. Roman Reigns versus Jey Uso inside Hell in a Cell. Man, <laughs> oh man, this is the best feud in wrestling right now, by far. By far. Um, Just everything, how everything has aligned. You know, you have Roman Reigns, who has turned heel. I don't even know if I've been up here since he's turned heel. Um, But, god damn it, Roman Reigns is just knocking it out of the park every single time he shows up on TV. Amazing. And it's like, it's a wonder. I've seen a lot of people online have agreed with me in this. It's a wonder why they took so long to do it. I guess they were trying to push through the the Cena route with Roman Reigns, trying to make him as explicitly equal to John Cena as they could in that they did not want to waver in changing him, um, changing his ethos or his character or whatever you want to call it, right? But I think everything has just, it made sense. And, you know, Roman Reigns, he's always been good on the mic. Not always, but like for a long, for a long time, he's been good on the mic. And in the past, it's been this thing where it's like he can't really show it, right? Because he's playing this character that is very, you know, Fruity Pebbles. It's very, it's very eat your vitamins, say your prayers. It's very John Cena. It's very Hulk Hogan. It's the same formula. And Roman was trying to configure himself to kind of mold himself in that image. But that image is not him. Roman Reigns is kind of a cocky douchebag. <laughs> and he has, he has... 
he's shown spurts of that in the past, right? Very, very little. You know, sometimes he'll like, you know, act all cocky when after he hits a spear and he'll like do a little taunt at, before a pin or um, just his demeanor. He's always had like a semblance of this, this badass yet kind of a dick kind of guy, right? But he hasn't been able to embrace that because that hasn't been the character that he was given. And I don't think a lot of people take that into account. The character he was given hindered him. Hindered him. Okay? This character that he has now perfectly aligns with his capabilities as a performer. And when I say that, I mean it's just what he was meant to do. It's what Roman Reigns, it's what Joe Annoy. I don't know how to pronounce I always, I always fuck up how to pronounce that name. But Joe the guy is able to embrace his character much more than he was able to embrace the previous Roman Reigns character. It's not like he magically got these mic skills overnight. Although, you know, Paul Heyman, I'm, I'm sure it has helped him. Roman's always been a good mic guy. He's always had great delivery. But now he can really, really maximize his value as a heel. And I think that is why it's been so goddamn good. It's just because he comes off natural now. It's not a fabricated wrestling character. I mean, it is, but it isn't. Because he can use his natural charisma, his natural confidence, and he's able to intertwine the whole Samoan Dynasty storyline within that. And that all, you know, combines to make a great, great heel, a great champion. And Jey Uso coming into the picture only amplified that. So really good stuff between these two guys. I can't say enough about what they're doing. And, you know, I talk about Roman Reigns. Everybody talks about Roman Reigns, but I don't think enough people are talking about how goddamn good Jey Uso is. The Usos are another, I mean, I hate to, like, package them together. But they've, again... A team that another very underrated uh, mic, very underrated guys on the mic, very underrated. Ever since they turned heel a few years ago, they've been killing it. You know, they had the Uso penitentiary stuff, but a lot of their promos with the New Day, um, with other tag teams have been amazing, consistently amazing, very believable too. believable is the word, I think, both with Roman and the Usos believable and you can immerse yourself as you're watching it and when they when they combine shit beautiful beautiful storytelling and um i'm rambling about this whole fucking samoan thing but it's so goddamn good okay i will talk for two hours about nothing but samoans and you will fucking listen to it (laughs) sorry i got really mad there all of a sudden i'm sorry um for no reason i'm literally talking to myself um so yeah, man, this match. Hell in a Cell, Roman versus Jay. Great match. Um, I was a bit worried in the beginning. I was like, okay, are they literally just going to replicate what they did at SummerSlam? Which, Summer, SummerSlam was great. It was one of the best matches I've ever seen in my life. Um, but I was like, okay, I, I kind of wish they would expand on what they're doing. This, this is what I was thinking in the beginning, right? But, um, man, they added a whole new element to it. That, that I quit match stipulation was brilliant because that added a whole other layer to this match because it's not just a matter of who is going to beat the other guy. It's who is going to submit all of their values that they've built up because, you know, it should be said, the premise of this match is the loser 
not only doesn't walk out with the Universal Championship, but the loser gets kicked out of that family, the Anoa'i family. Again, I'm probably butchering it, but you know what I mean, right? The winner is the head of the table, essentially, and then the loser is just, I don't know, I guess they go join Samoa Joe's other Samoan family, <laughs> um, even though he's not Samoan, but that's a whole different topic. But really good build to this match and um, very clear stakes. Not only do you have the title at stake, but you have their whole family connection at stake, which is a very unique thing. And it's just a perfect with the whole legitimate, you know, how they're legitimately in a family together and how they're tying that all together and how I believe that they're building to something even bigger than this. So I really love that aspect of it. And it really enhanced the match because that really makes both guys not want to quit because it's not just a matter of losing a match. It's not just a matter of missing out on the pay window. It's not just a matter of not walking out with the title. It's a matter of everything that you've lived for slipping from your hands. It's about everything that embodies you. They both, all these guys, they have all the Samoan tattoos. They have all of that history. You know, the, the, the Usos used to come out to the, the that Lamanu dance, or uh, I think that's what it's called. I could be wrong, you, but you know what I'm talking about, right? And it's just everything all these guys are built on gets taken away from them if they quit. So I think that added to the tension of the match and it made, uh, at least made me, really believe what I was watching. And uh, ultimately, that's what makes wrestling great, right? Is when you get sucked in and you forget that this is a scripted, you know, choreographed dance. And when you're watching it, you just think it's two guys fighting for everything that they have. So that's why this is so good. I see people online be like, uh, it's too it's too dramatic. I can't I can't believe I, I can't get into it, right? Because they're, they're family, so they obviously don't hate each other. Guess what, bud? Nobody fucking hates each other. <laughs> Randy Orton and Drew McIntyre don't hate each other. Miz and Otis don't hate each other. You know, if you if you take somebody's wrist and, and you pull it, they're not just going to keep running into the ropes. If you kick somebody in the stomach, they're not going to lay down for 20 seconds for you to go to the top rope and hit a move. It's fucking pro wrestling, okay? <laughs> Shit. Just wanted to get that because I see so, uh, not a lot of criticism, but... A little bit of criticism. And if you didn't like this match, you're an asshole. Like, opinions are opinions. But if you didn't like Roman Reigns versus Jey Uso, you probably have a very small penis. So, that's that, that's my expert opinion. Um, that's kind of my analysis on the uh, on, on that. Um, maybe I dug a little too deep on there. But, um, yeah, you probably have a, a little pecker if you didn't like this match. But, anyways. Um... <laughs> um I feel like I'm rambling. Am I rambling? Fuck you. I don't care. It's my podcast. Uh, and so, <laughs> so this match, right? I feel like I'm like going around my asshole to get to my elbow here. But um, love the match. And uh, yeah, towards the end, Roman Reigns has Jay down. He's speared him like 50 times. He, But he won't quit. He won't quit. So what does Roman do? He pulls Jay to the apron. So that his head's on the apron and the rest of his body is in the ring. Gets the steel stairs. Puts the stairs on the other side of Jay's so that Jay's head is in between the stairs and the, the turnbuckle post. And Roman Reigns hits the drive-by, kicks the stairs into Jay's head, creating a sandwich that is not at all delicious, but a sandwich that crush, crushes the head of Jay, Us Jay Uso. Jay Uso. 
brutal spot. I really like that. I think it seems like a thing that he's going to start incorporating a lot. Um, I thought that was a good touch. And that was essentially like the last move, I think, that occurred in the match, right? Because Jay is kind of knocked out. Um, he's not quitting. You have to say, I quit to lose. You have to explicitly say it. This isn't like a submission match where you, your body could submit to pain and pass out and then you lose. This is an I quit match where you have to say, I quit. And Jay will not say, I quit, probably because he's knocked the fuck out. But um, <laughs> so Roman's pissed. Um, he is about to deliver more damage to Jay. He grabs the stairs. He's about to crush his head. He's about to Gallagher this motherfucker's head and splatter blood all over the arena, um, which prompts uh, people to unlock the door, come into the ring. The ref, you know, is like the outside ref comes in. He's like, Roman, stop it. Stop it. That's enough. That's too much. You know, Adam Pierce, Jamie Noble, all those guys, all the refs come out, try to stop Roman. And I see, look, if you have a problem with this, <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you as far as like people trying to stop the match before somebody says I quit. But you got to look at it in a kayfabe sense, right? Like, yes, we know what the rules are. However, there, there's a human element to it. There's a human element to it. In real life, we're not just going to watch a guy kill a guy in the middle of the ring. That's just not what would happen. A match is a match, but this guy is literally going to murder this, this, uh, his cousin because of the family implications at stake. I thought everybody trying to stop Roman added a human element to it, and I thought that really made it even that more, much more emotional. And even adding on top of that, Jimmy Uso coming out. Again, this is kind of what I was thinking, you know, the kind of the, the same thing that happened at SummerSlam, right? Jimmy comes out to try to stop Roman from beating on Jay, and I'm thinking, oh, he's going to, Jimmy's going to say I quit, or he's going to throw in the towel, and we're going to have the same finish, right? That's what I thought was going to happen, and I was kind of annoyed at that, but man, did they pull out all the stops to make something different here? Jimmy kind of talks Roman down. Roman breaks down in tears because he doesn't, he, he uh, to quote Roman, he doesn't know who he is anymore. And that's kind of the whole premise of the story, right? Is that Roman has spiraled and he's become a person that he wasn't. He's become a different person. And the Usos, as his family, are confused and upset that Roman has changed so much from what the core of his soul is and so jimmy kind of talks down roman roman breaks down they hug jimmy and roman do they hug and they, it seems like all's hunky-dory even though jay's still dead in the middle of the ring it's all great we're all fine family together again let's go home and then boom guillotine chokehold by roman reigns his new submission finisher grabs jimmy's neck Puts him in a guillotine, 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 whatever it is. And Jay comes to a little bit. He sees that his brother, who is still injured, is in this guillotine. He's helpless. He can't get out. So Jay then says, I quit. Not because Jay wants to quit, but because Jay loves his brother. Fucking beautiful. Beautiful ending to the match. Um, it really preserved. So basically what you get as a result of this match, Roman is now solidified as the head of the table. Solidified by beating Jay once again and solidified by walking out of the cell with the universal title up the ramp where Afa and Sika 
the wild Samoans are waiting for him. And if you're going to have anyone in that family that's still alive today to pass the torch to Roman Reigns as the head of the table, it is Afa and Sika. Sika, obviously, or maybe not obviously, maybe if you don't know, Sika is the father of Roman Reigns. So a really cool moment there. I thought that was an awesome touch and bringing those guys out, adding more family elements to the story. And because I thought it was really important and really good that they did that because you, 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 you can kind of get the sense of Roman being a little bit delusional. So it's like, okay, he won this match and he's, he, he thinks he's the head of the table, but is he actually, but then when you throw Alpha and Sika in there, that kind of solidifies, Oh shit, this is actually like a real thing. This isn't just Roman's thoughts of grandeur in his own mind. This is an actual thing with the family members who previously at the head of the table, anointing him as that new that new face of the family so that added a really cool uh organic natural element to it and um yeah man roman reigns is a superstar he's he's the best wrestler in the world he's the best sports entertainer in the world he's the best wrestler in the world this this feud between roman and jay has been the best storyline that i've seen in at least a decade maybe more maybe ever maybe ever I don't want to let recency bias kind of cloud my judgment, but man, I can't think of anything more emotional than that that I've seen recently at all um, in any company. So um, really good stuff here, and I love the spotlight that the Usos are getting, and I don't think this is over by any means. I think this is just the first step in a long arc for Roman Reigns. So I I don't think I'm the only one who thinks this, but Roman Reigns is what keeps me tuning into SmackDown every week because everything involving him and involving the Usos and that whole storyline, that whole Samoan Dynasty storyline is just money. And uh, yeah, good stuff here. I, I know I talked for goddamn an hour about this one match, but um, it was just so good and it deserved it. And I think I haven't really talked about it on here, you know, since it started. So I just wanted to kind of get that out there and my thoughts on it. But um, yeah, really good ending to the match. Um, and it kind of preserved Jay's... Um, ethics and his morals because he didn't quit because of him he quit because he wanted to save his brother so you couldn't have had a better ending to that match but but man what do you have after that how the hell that's the first match of the goddamn show how do you follow that shit i'll tell you how jeff hardy versus elias um man props to these guys i I don't know how i don't know how you recover from such an emotional match like Roman versus Jay, but um, yeah, man, they had a fine match out there, man. It was obviously the let up spot. It was um, let's kind of take a second to breathe. Um, but Jeff Hardy and Elias, man, they went out there and had a pretty solid match. Uh, I guess the premise of the story here is that uh, I do like the callbacks or I do like the uh, continuity of this because uh, it was Jeff Hardy that took out Elias allegedly <laughs> by hitting him with a car and we all we all remember the jeff you know dui with seamus storyline deal and how ultimately it was seamus who hit elias and he kind of set up jeff um made him made it look like he hit elias and you know why did why did nobody go to jail for this by the way i'm just i'm just remembering it <laughs> like somebody should be in jail for fucking hitting elias and taking him out for five months or whatever um but it is what it is. But like I said, it's, it's it's been made perfectly clear that Seamus was the guy 
You know, they had, oh, it was a guy in red hair and a red beard that hit, or whatever it was. But Elias knows this, but he doesn't care. He ignores this because he wants to rip the spotlight and the star power from Jeff Hardy. He wants to have this whole hullabaloo and shenanigans with Jeff Hardy because he wants to be in the spotlight because he has an album to promote, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I guess that's the story here, but... This match ends ultimately in a DQ when uh, Elias grabs his guitar, uh, but Jeff is able to counter it and rip the guitar from his wrists, from his hands, from his highly accessorized wrists, and smashes Elias with the guitar and gets DQ'd. So, a moment of frustration for old Jeffro. Uh, it costs him the match here, but uh, to me, it seems like the story will continue. Um, and we'll see more development of it probably on SmackDown. So, like I said, a let up match from the previous Hell in a Cell match. So, wasn't expecting too much of it. But I think it uh, exceeded my expectations. I will say that. But, um, man, you talk about expectations. You know, I don't want to get too ahead of myself. But uh, this next match, Miz versus Otis for the Money in the Bank contract that is held by Otis. Let's talk about Otis for a second. Um, him and his Money in the Bank contract. I don't, know, I don't even know if I've really talked about it in length on here. Um, I love Otis. I think Otis is supremely entertaining. I, I love. I was a big Chris Farley fan. Uh, still am. And obviously, there's been a lot of comparisons between him and Otis. Um, I think Otis is hilarious. Uh, not just his look, but his his delivery his his things he does in the ring I, I love his whole thing right now just because the fans like somebody does not mean that they should be a world champion <laughs> okay we liked we liked santino but you don't need, need to throw the world heavyweight title on him we all loved sa rios but you didn't need to have him beat stone cold steve austin it's kind of the same thing here with with otis right it was just a little bit of a knee jerk too much too soon with him i thought you know, that kind of set expectations on him and it kind of gave a way for fans to turn on him because it's like, oh, why, why, why aren't you going to give AJ Styles some money in the bank contract? Why aren't you going to give Aleister Black the money in the bank contract? Why are you going to give it to Otis? So I think that, that kind of set him up for failure and they were kind of looking at the short term because at the time he was he was getting a lot of good reactions uh, online and... um they're like, oh, I guess we're going to shoot him to the moon, I guess. Not really thinking of... It's very clear they never had a plan for him to cash in. They just kind of wanted him to win the match and kind of figure it out from there. So, and it's very clear because Miz beats Otis in this match. Miz wins the match and now owns the money in the bank contract. So, very clear that they had no plans for Otis. And this is kind of their getaway plan. Um... Which I think a lot of people were kind of predicting this would happen, right? Once this match was announced. And people were predicting other stuff with The Miz, but we'll get into that later. Um, but the ending of this match, I had to mention, Otis loses because Ducky turns on him. Holy shit, I did not see that coming. Maybe in hindsight I should have, but I literally, like, I, I, I tweeted this. I, like, audibly yelped. Like, What? When that happened, like like a little girl, like a little kid, I was that that caught me very off guard. Um, but it makes sense when you think about it, right? Because if these guys are going to be separated, 
they have to have their own identity and we can't have we can't just have tucker be the the other heavy machinery guy we can't just have tucker be the guy that used to team with otis we have to give tucker some something to work with right and i don't know because i'm very confused because like i said they're on different brands otis and tucker so are they gonna are they gonna keep feuding or (laughs) are we just gonna have more brands kind of uh molding what's the word i'm looking for more brand intertwining which I'm not a fan of, and I don't think a lot of fans are. Because if you're going to do the brand split, have them fucking separate, okay? Like, Christ. Is it that hard? Is it that hard? Um, but they, they, they had a backstage segment where Otis and Tucker were fighting, and it seemed like they're going to continue some sort of storyline with that. Um, although, one thing to keep in mind is that Survivor Series is coming up, which is a multi-brand pay-per-view, as I guess they all are, but... Um, but the whole premise of Survivor Series, generally, at least in the past couple of years, has been brand versus brand. So maybe they'll kind of frame that as a, a Raw versus SmackDown match. Maybe they'll just like include each of those guys in a five on five. Um, so, you know, as I'm talking through it out loud right now, I, I guess that, that that could make sense. That could be OK. Um, but, yeah, we'll see what goes from there. I, I don't know. I'm getting very this reminds me of when crime time broke up. And then you had Shad and JTG separate, and neither guy really had success on their own, even though they were very entertaining together. Unfortunately, I'm getting similar vibes between this and that. Um, But we'll wait and see. I know both guys are very talented. I think Tucker is very underrated. He's very athletic, um, and he's a pretty good talker, too. And Otis, we know who Otis is. We know how charismatic he is and how marketable he is, so... So um, I think both guys have all the tools to have success. It's just a matter of, well, will they? <laughs> will they get booked to have success? Will they get booked at all? Or will they both just be fighting on main event for a crowd of nobody? So um, we'll see, I guess. But the bigger story here, well, maybe not the bigger, depending on your preference. But the other big story here is that Miz now has the money in the bank. And I think a lot of people were expecting him to cash in on them in the main event. And it all made sense, right? Because you either, you know, I won't, I won't spoil it yet, but main event, Drew McIntyre versus Randy Orton for the WWE title. You could either have Miz replicate his previous cash in on Randy Orton, or you can have Miz, you know, cash in on Drew McIntyre and you have a built in storyline between McIntyre and Miz there. Um, or you could have I, what I expected to happen. What my prediction was, I thought Randy Orton was going to win the title, Miz was going to cash in, and then Randy Orton was going to beat the Miz because he's like, oh, I've been here before. I've been cashed on by Miz before. I know what this is all about now, so now I'm prepared. Now I'm going to counter Miz, and he's not going to cash in on me a second time. So I thought Miz was going to win the briefcase, cash in on Randy Orton, and then fail to win the title. That's what I thought was going to happen, but... If you saw the show, you know that is not what happens. But uh, we'll get into that more uh, once we get there. So, but after that, man, a doggy. We have the second Hell in a Cell match of the night for the SmackDown Women's Title: Sasha Banks versus Bailey. G fucking Willikers. This was a brutal match. Awesome match. Great stuff from both ladies here. Um, 
utilizing the cell a lot, you know, bringing in chairs, kendo sticks, uh, ladders, all sorts of shenanigans, um, duct tape, fucking, it's a beautiful match. I'm not going to go into every spot in this match because that would take forever because there was just so much that happened. Um, I will say my favorite part of this match, what made me pop hard watching it, is uh, so Sasha's like on the ground somewhere on the outside. Bailey looks under the ring. She finds duct tape and she's having a hard time, you know, getting the duct tape to unravel. I, I, I have a problem with that too myself. I'm very bad when, when, I, when I lose the little strip of duct tape and you have to like kind of pry it loose. I'm very bad at that myself. So I was getting very, I was getting huge anxiety watching this. Um, <laughs> and then Bailey's, she, 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 she's, she's struggling to get the duct tape to unroll. So she, she looks at the ref. She's like, Hey, my, my, my fingers are kind of sweaty. Can you help me with this? And the ref's like, no, I will not help you with this. <laughs> I don't even know if everybody caught that, but that made me laugh for some reason. Um, but <laughs> it became more hilarious when she finally got the duct tape to unroll and then she like taped two kendo sticks together and made like a bridge between the ring and the cell but then the the, the kendo sticks just kind of crumpled and bailey was like ah man i thought that would work better or something but god damn i love bailey i love how she i love her verbals during the match i love how she yells at michael cole (laughs) because she can hear him right um bailey's just so entertaining as a heel um, I think she's really hitting her stride here, and I think this is ultimately going to be her legacy when it's all said and done. So, I love what she's doing. Um, but yeah, at the end of the match comes um, a beautiful finish when you really understand the context, right? So, Sasha has Bailey's head in between the chair and also has her in the bank statement. So, a really... So, I'm watching it and I'm like, man, does the chair really even adding anything to it? But then Sasha, as she has her in the bank statement, Sasha takes her feet and stomps on the chair to like crush Bailey's head while she's in the bank statement. And then of course, Bailey has to tap out here. So Bailey taps out um, and Sasha wins the SmackDown women's title. Now that finish, I will mention there was a spot that was very similar to that in their famous uh, TakeOver Brooklyn match where it was basically that, but Sasha was just stomping on Bailey's hands instead of a chair. Um, the chair aspect also is an element because we all remember when Bailey turned on Sasha, she stuck Sasha's head in between the chair, much similarly to how Bailey's head was in the chair here. And, you know, she did the whole stomp off the second rope thing. And that's pretty much what Sasha was doing here, but just very short, quick stomps on the chair. So both a callback to the initial turn by Bailey and a callback to their match at TakeOver Brooklyn, which really solidified their careers. So really awesome storytelling at the end of this match. And the whole match itself, if, you, if you're going to watch one match from this show, I would argue watch this match because it's from a pure brutality from a pure, you know, wrestling entertainment aspect, I think this is, might have been my favorite match on the card. Um, awesome stuff. Sasha always shows out in these Hell in a Cell matches, um, and um, I was really glad that this match is great because the, the the feud itself was kind of leaving me wanting more. You know, I kind of, I think we all have kind of expected more from this, and I don't know what it is. It just felt like it was missing something. 
I say felt in the past tense because I'm assuming this is the blow off, but maybe it's not. Who knows? But I don't know. I think it was a lot of it had to do with the fact that because obviously you have Bailey positioned as the heel here, but Sasha isn't necessarily likable herself because Sasha and Bailey had been a tag team for the better part of a year and have both been huge dicks, like very hateable people. You know, sunglass wearing, you know, dancing to the ring, cocky, you know, cheating to win, all this stuff, all the heel stuff that both of them have been doing. And now, just because Bailey turns on Sasha, now we're supposed to like Sasha? I thought that was a little short-sighted in that aspect. I think they could have done more building to the term in terms of making Sasha uh, more likable or at least trying to create sympathy for Sasha or a way for the fans to feel sympathy for her because I just didn't. I didn't. When when Bailey crushed her neck, I was like, yeah, she Sasha's an asshole. She deserved it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like I think that is what kind of diminished the uh the value of this feud, right? Because Sasha versus Bailey on the main roster, we've all been waiting for years for this. And now it finally happens and now you essentially have two heels facing each other and no one really to root for. So I think that kind of hurt it in a sense, but maybe I'm just looking too deep into it because the match here at Hell in a Cell was amazing. And if that's where it leaves off, if that's where it ends, you know, I'm happy with it. I thought it was an amazing match. So uh, good on both these ladies. I'm sure they have hella ibuprofen and hella ice packs right now. So, um, but speaking of painful, what do we got next? We have the United States Championship on the line. Bobby Lashley versus Slapjack. Slapjack. Um, <laughs> so we got Lashley versus Shane Thorne here for the United States title. Now, if you would have told me that Shane Thorne was going to be competing for a U.S. championship on a pay-per-view a few months ago, I would I would have been like, slap your tits and call me Betsy. I do not believe that. Um, but we have it here. And... Um, it was it was what it was. I mean, it w- it was a little more competitive than I had expected. I thought it was just going to be a straight up squash by Lashley, but uh, Slapjack got a good min- good amount of offense in, um, which was good to see. But ultimately, it was still a very short match, and ultimately, Lashley wins with the Hurt Lock, full Nelson, and uh, gives Retribution another loss. Um, should probably talk about Retribution, right? <laughs> I don't really know if I've talked about it in length on this podcast, but uh, look, man, I have no stake in Retribution being successful. I think from the very beginning, it was corny and it feels like bootleg Nexus. It feels like a watered down version of Nexus. And that's all I can see it as just because these guys happen to have masks isn't going to make me forget that we've seen this storyline several times over the years various factions you know i just did an episode on the invasion we saw that you know how wcw and ecw invaded wwf this huge mass of people taking over a company and now compare that to retribution which is essentially five individuals and masks and black hoodies why do what makes me threatened by them nothing we have a guy that got a, a former commentator that got shit canned by Brock Lesnar. We have Mia Yim, who, I mean, look, 
I'm all for gender equality, but are we going to have Mia Yim face Bobby Lashley? Who's going to win there? You know what I'm saying? You have Shane Thorne, a former tag team guy who hasn't really had any of any success as a singles. You have uh, T-Bag, who is Dominic Dijakovic, which could have had a, a decent amount of success on his own merit, but now he's calling himself T-Bar and has a Bane mask and... I don't know. It's just and then you throw Ali in there, and I like, dude. I I love Ali. I love Mustafa Ali. I think he killed it on Two Hundred Five Live. I think he was the heart and soul of that brand, and he made it real something that's something that was worth watching. I think he did a great job with his little feud, mini feud with Daniel Bryan, his little feud with Randy Orton. Every time he gets a chance to talk or have a promo or have any semblance of character development, he knocks it out of the park every time. I see some people online who kind of have this mindset that Mustafa Ali is just another cruiserweight guy. He's just another super kicking, backflipping, Canadian destroying guy. He isn't. Just because he's a very athletic guy and he's kind of a smaller guy, which by the way, he's not that fucking small. He's a he's kind of a big dude compared to the general public, right? But he's such a good promo. If you if you don't believe me, watch his promo building up to WrestleMania in his match against Cedric Alexander. That was a match that for all intents and purposes had no heat and no reason to care about it other than the title itself, right? But Mustafa Ali was able to create a whole narrative for that storyline in like a like a two or three minute promo. He was able to establish the motivations for him, for Cedric, and he established why people should care about a match. And that is what a promo is designed to do. Mustafa Ali does that time in, time out when he has a chance to talk about anything of substance, right? And I think anointing him as the leader... Of retribution, and especially, especially when you tie in the fact that he was the SmackDown hacker and kind of intertwining all those things, I think it was a great move. I think he's a great leader for that group, and I, I still think he can make it something. But as of right now, retribution. I, I if they got rid of him next week, I would not care. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, they like I said, they've done nothing to put themselves above any other invading faction that's existed ever. There's nothing menacing about any of them. There's no reason, there's no threat. It's like four or five of them. It's five of them, right? With a couple other random henchmen, I guess, sometimes. But the, we can, the Hurt Business has just been shitting on all their lives. <laughs> Lashley is almost single-handedly destroying all of them. He tapped out T-Bar on Raw. He tapped out Slapjack here. He's, you know, the Hurt Business stood tall at the end of this match and retribution went scurrying. So it's 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 a little mind it's a little baffling how they're booking retribution, but that's not necessarily saying that they can't recover because we ultimately we don't know what the story is here. And I think worst case scenario, let's look at the worst case scenario here. Let's say retribution just keeps getting buried. Let's say retribution keeps losing matches and keeps getting their ass kicked. Guess what? You know what that does? That builds up the hurt business. That solidifies Lashley, Cedric Alexander, Shelton Benjamin, and MVP as a dominant faction. A faction that is a force to be reckoned with 
and a faction of four guys that could each have varying levels of success on Raw. They're on Raw, right? I don't even remember. Whatever brand they're on, they're being built to be look strong. So, whereas Retribution, you can say, is being buried, guess what? We still have the Hurt Business having the opposite effect in that they are having a huge amount of success and they're being built to be a credible, credible faction. I think that is something that we can all appreciate because MVP it might be the best talker in wrestling right now. And then he, he was single-handedly able to revitalize the, the careers of Lashley, Cedric Alexander, and Shelton Benjamin to the point where all of those guys are credible now. They were floundering before or not even on TV, and now they're a part of a major faction that is getting win after win over a group that is supposedly taking over WWE. <laughs> so, I don't know, man. I, I Basically, let's just wait and see what happens. Because ultimately, I don't think it's really going to be that bad in the long run. Whatever the result is. Um, maybe I'm just a glass half full asshole. Who knows? <laughs> but that brings us to the main event of the evening. The third Hell in a Cell match of the night for the WWE Championship. The champion, Drew McIntyre, defending against Randy Orton. Man, oh man, this match ruled. It was um, more of a classic Hell, Hell in a Cell match than the other two. Classic in the sense of like a tr- like more of a traditional style Hell in a Cell. And uh, meaning that... You know, there are storyline implications, obviously. This is, this is a match that have, has been built over several months um, and is the culmination or the blow-off of a, of, a, of a feud that has lasted pretty much the entire summer, which is exactly what Hell in a Cell is, as I said earlier, is what it should be utilized to do. It should be a way for a feud to come to an end, a definitive end. And I think that's what we saw here, or maybe. Um, so, like I said, really good match, utilized the cell a lot, but also kind of kept a lot of action in the ring as well. Um, kept that human one-on-one aspect to it um, and utilizing the cell when it came into play, when it made sense. And I do like how this match came to an end. So, Drew is uh, getting the better of Randy Orton. You know, he's hitting him with a bunch of moves. He's beating him with weapons. He's throwing him against the cell. Randy Orton says, fuck this noise. I'm out. Conveniently brings out bolt cutters that he has hidden under under the ring. I don't know why. Nobody went to check for that. But Randy pulls out bolt cutters, bolts his, cuts his way out of the cell, starts walking to the back. He says, fuck this. I'm going home. Drew runs out through the door, catches Orton, They start brawling on the outside of the ring, but ultimately Orton gets the better of Drew here, knocks him down to the ground. Um, I forget how, doesn't matter, but (laughs) Randy Orton then gets a, uh, gets a look in his eye. Here's those voices in his head, etc. And then he fucking climbs to the top of the cell, which gave us a awesome visual of, uh, Randy standing on top of the cell Drew McIntyre gets to his feet. He looks up on top of the cell. He sees Orton, and Orton does the whole with his hand, like, come just bring it kind of deal. Really cool visual there. And then Drew's like, I'm Scottish. I'll do it. Or whatever. However he talks. 
So he climbs to the top of the cell, and then Orton brings out a lightsaber. What a plot twist. A uh, Darth Maul lightsaber, and he starts swinging it at Drew, and and Drew counters and hits Randy with it. It's a whole thing. But then uh, (laughs) they both start climbing down the cell, and you can already see what's happening. You could even hear on commentary, like in the background, like all the all the guys are like moving out of the way to make room for this spot. The spot that we've seen time and time again, it's like, look, I understand it's an impressive spot and it probably doesn't feel too great, but like we need to like, I don't know. I guess like I'm, I'm not expecting either guy to like fall off the top of the cell like Shane McMahon, but if like we let's add something new to it, you know, I was kind of hoping Randy would like RKO Drew McIntyre off the cell or something. You know what I'm saying? But um, what we get is Drew ends up falling. You know, they're both standing like halfway up the cell on the little beam in the middle of it. Uh, Drew McIntyre falls, crashes through the announce table and he is dead. Coughing up blood. Uh, shit in his pants, whatever, whatever, you know, what other injuries come with falling off a cell. Um, I don't know if he shit his pants, but I definitely would if I had, uh, if I had fallen off a cell. I shit my pants uh, under uh, less circumstances, but uh, that's irrelevant. Now I'm getting beside the point here. So, <laughs> so Drew, he's down. Like I said, he's coughing up blood, uh, but you can only win in this case. Yeah, they they change it seemingly every year, but this year you can only win it in the ring. So. Randy drags Drew around the cell, through the door, into the ring. Tries to pin him, but gets a two count. Tries to give him an RKO, but Drew McIntyre counters. And then Drew then sets up for a Claymore. You know, he's hurting. His ribs are broken. His coccyx is separated. Everything is uh, going wrong inside of him. But Drew McIntyre is trying to, trying to hulk up. He's trying to get get that fire inside of him right so he's he's sitting up for the claymore he sprints out of the corner leaps and then just lionels what's what's the what's the peanuts guy name what the what's the guy no it was uh fuck who was the peanut that would like try to kick the football am i stupid charlie brown it was charlie brown right i don't know whatever (laughs) he drew mcintyre banana peels and misses the claymore and uh randy then capitalizes with an rko for the one two three your 14 time world champion new wwe champion randall keith orton fuck man another really really good match another really good hell in a cell match and um i do like how it ultimately came to an end with you know, McIntyre falling off the cell, essentially it was kind of a fluky kind of deal, right? Because you got to remember, if you even look a little deeper, maybe I'm looking too deep into it, but I like how they built up to it, right? Drew McIntyre beat Randy Orton at SummerSlam, definitively. It was a roll-up win, but it was it was a clear-cut victory. Randy Orton says it was a fluke. I want, I want, a, I want a more definitive finish. Let's have an ambulance match. So Drew beats him in that, albeit with the help of other legends, but... It was all karma coming back to hit Randy Orton where, you know, the sun is in his asshole, right? So Drew McIntyre beats him twice. For all intents and purposes, Randy Orton doesn't deserve a third title opportunity, but Orton is able to coax it out of Drew McIntyre because Drew McIntyre, his one weakness is that he's very emotional. Randy Orton notes that and attacks all the legends with his scuba 
night uh, <laughs> night vision goggles is fucking <laughs> apparently it's Splinter Cell now. He attacks Ric Flair, Christian, Big Show, and Shawn Michaels with a chair in the dark, and now all who are friends of Drew McIntyre. So now we're we're coaxing that emotion out of Drew, and now he's going to accept any match that Randy Orton offers him because he just wants to get his hands on Randy Orton again. Now, it's not for the title. I mean, it is for the title, but it's not about the title. It's about Randy Orton punishing or getting punished by Drew McIntyre. So Randy Orton was able to goat Drew McIntyre into this match in the first place. Randy Orton in the match was able to goat Drew McIntyre to the top of the cell. And ultimately, that was Drew McIntyre's downfall because the fall off the cell was kind of a fluky fall, but it was all happening because of the way Randy Orton was able to feed off the emotion of Drew McIntyre. It was all it all happened because Drew McIntyre succumbed, succumbed to the mind games of Randy Orton, ultimately caused Drew McIntyre to fall off the cell through the table, which was ultimately his downfall in the match and led to Randy Orton being able to pin Drew McIntyre in his first singles match pinfall loss in like a year, I think, right? So all that in mind, great finish, great finish, great match, great storytelling. Now, at the end of the storyline, who knows? I mean, I, I find it hard to believe that Randy gets three or two rematches and then Drew doesn't even get one. I have a hard time picturing a scenario where Drew McIntyre doesn't get at least one rematch here. Even though they got rid of the rematch clause thing, I think, you know, even if it's just on a Raw or something, I feel like Drew McIntyre is going to get at least one rematch here. So don't know if it's necessarily over. Um, but uh, yeah, well, I guess we'll just have to tune in for and tune into Raw and see. But um, I did pose a question. Um, it, was, it was late last night. So, so yeah, late last night, because I wasn't really even sure if I was going to come up here and do a review. But after the show, I was like, yeah, there's a lot of meat on the bone here. So I, I posted on Instagram, and I think I'm going to start doing this more in the future. Uh, I'll probably give you guys more notice. Um, but I was like, hey, you have any questions about Hell in a Cell or anything you want me to comment on or any uh, other comments you have on it? Um, and uh, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, but Martin Junjelo. Martin Junjelo. Martin Jelo. Uh, <laughs> you ask, do you think Drew should have lost with an interference to protect him, or was it okay like how it was? Um, like I said, I, I kind of touched on that. I think it was okay because of the way it was kind of a fluky kind of fall for Drew, and that's really the big, the bulk of why he lost, right? It's really the main factor, the main catalyst, and why he wasn't able to kick out of the RKO is because of the damage he sustained from falling off the cell. So I think they Drew still Drew is still strong coming out of this match. I mean, losing a match doesn't ruin your credibility, especially when he lost in the way that he did. So no, I think Drew losing in the way that he did was just fine. But to kind of tack on to what I was saying earlier about maybe Drew getting a potential rematch, I think in that rematch, I think Drew will lose by interference by whoever he's feuding with next. So that's how I kind of see things painting out. So, but we'll see. We'll see. And then uh, another question I got in terms of uh, this whole Drew versus Randy thing. Frogo Tronic asks, do you think Bray and Orton are going to have a feud for the belt? It's a very interesting question. I think it's very possible because um, you're looking at the raw roster right now. I mean, who else would 
challenge Orton. Jeff Hardy, maybe. Um, you know, someone in the Hurt business or Retribution. I, I don't really see it at this point. Just where their characters are, and unless they like make the Hurt business seem more like baby faces, maybe you can have like an MVP or a, a Bobby Lashley. Cha- I don't know, but I think yeah, I think Bray Wyatt makes the most sense, especially considering he's not really doing anything right now. Um, so he's almost like kind of in the staging area, ready to face Orton. So and I think that'd be interesting as hell. Cause you have that, that prior, uh, that prior feud to build off of that WrestleMania feud. So I think there's a lot of ways they can go with it. And, um, and their alignments are kind of switched because I think Randy Orton was the baby face at the time. Um, and now he's the heel. So, and, uh, yeah, I would love to see Fiends versus Randy Orton. I think the whole addition of Alexa Bliss has been amazing to the presentation. And it just goes to show, man, you know, especially with Fiend, like, taking out Retribution and everything. You know, people, like, lose their dicks when the Fiend loses and just lose their shit when the Fiend gets beat. You know, he got beat by Goldberg, which is stupid. Yeah, I agree. But he gets beat by Roman Reigns, like, after the match. After him and Braun have a match and people are like, oh, the Fiend's buried. He's ruined. He'll never recover. Like, shut the fuck up. The Fiend is the Fiend is a character. His whole success, his whole appeal is his character. He will always recover. He recovered before he was the Fiend. You can. It's a fictional fucking sport, okay? Losing a match isn't the end of you. If you're able to maintain that heat and Bray Wyatt is able to maintain the heat... He's able to evolve his character, like I said, with the addition of Alexa Bliss. And, you know, throw him in a feud with Randy Orton, you'll forget all about him losing to Roman Reigns. So, and I say that, I still think, you know, Fiend will get his comeuppance on Roman at some point. So, yeah, I think Bray versus Orton makes the most sense. Um, but, yeah, what's, uh, I think that's pretty much, I think it pretty much covers it, right? We talked about all the cells, we talked about all the hells, and we talked about all the in-us. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Have any other, uh, anything I missed, let me know. Um, but yeah, that's that's pretty much all I got for you guys today. Uh, apronbump.com for all my previous episodes. Uh, just released a WWF Invasion 2001 episode with uh, Joey from the Angle Podcast. I released that last week. Uh, so go check that out. I had a lot of fun with that. It's such a really cool time to talk about in wrestling. So, um, and Joey has a really good podcast and he's really good at what he does as well. So we really would have a good time with that. And, uh, next week we'll have some progress wrestling for you. Um, it's been a while since I've done one of those and we have some pretty good shows coming up with that. So, um, you know, progress chapters, uh, seven and eight, we got, Ring of Honor, Road to the Title, 2002. We got TNA, Against All Odds, 2005. Uh, SummerSlam, 1994. SummerSlam. Is there a fucking rocket ship outside? Good God. Interrupting my podcast. I'm going to go yell at them after this. But SummerSlam, 1994. SummerSlam, 2001. We got Bash at the Beach, 1994. All this shit coming up. So, really excited. Got some good guests for you, and uh, hey, your boy Hard will be here too. So that's all Daddy has for your ear holes this week. So once again, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you so much for all the support. I 
am hard. 